Fan Drive Time, Sportsnet 590, The Fan, Ben Ennis, Blake Murphy. What, what do I call this? Like a little slice of life sometimes we, we talk about off the top of the show, just easing our way into a sports radio conversation. I didn't have anything off the talk. I was maybe off the top. Maybe I was going to talk about it being a week away from opening day, Major League Baseball rolling out its its, its uh, online ad campaign, including some celebrities like retweeting the account. So that's interesting. But you, what, you have something... Like non-sports? Yeah, and that that's pretty rare for me because obviously... Uh, Your I, life is sports. Yeah, I have no self-worth or identity outside of my job. That's right. So it's not often that other things come up. But this is a something that came up with a friend or friends today, rather, and uh, I would like your take on it as a married guy. So uh, two friends of mine mm-hmm. who have been married for several years and been together even longer before that. And you were friends with them before they got married or just you no, know them I, as I a couple? Them, no, I knew them separately. I oh. was friends with both of them. That That's not really relevant to this, okay. though. No, um, I was just curious about that part. And I'm sorry, I don't have their permission to be talking about this, but it's, it's yeah. low-hanging enough that I think it's fine. She revealed to him today, after almost a decade together, that she doesn't actually like garlic bread. Now, my friend, his worry here is that there will be my initial instinct was oh more garlic bread for you his response was well garlic bread will just be around less often now so he might actually net even less garlic bread i think it's unfair this far in having established a regular volume and pattern of garlic bread to now take garlic bread away and be like actually i don't like that your the garlic bread life you've been living for the last eight years is no longer your garlic bread life now i'm using garlic bread specifically here but this could be anything okay when but it comes are to, you are you using garlic bread to cover for something that's no, even it's worse actually than that garlic bread and okay. it's that's the best appetizer so i i i'm confused so like they've been East married for eight Mario, years east side mario is rolling in his grave yeah. Right now, <laughs> hey, Mama Mia! Yeah. yeah, I don't know. Is that technically garlic? It's like loaf. I don't know if I would even call that garlic bread. But I'm, okay, Those are, I have a lot of thoughts. Yeah, I figured you would as a as a married guy who you know probably enjoys an appetizer. Yeah, who doesn't? I, I live in a world where you share everything with your partner, as far as she knows. Um, but <laughs> but oh. uh, but I can't like so the the woman. The, the wife has been living a lie for almost a decade. Mm-hmm. Let's start here. Why? I, I don't know. I think it's probably one of those things where, like, your partner likes something and you're eh about it. So you just don't ever say anything about it. But, but it got to a point <laughs> but where... he didn't notice that she wasn't eating it or she was eating it Come and on. hating it? Hang on. You're going to put a plate of garlic bread between <laughs> us right now. And you're going to expect me to notice and, and it raise alarms to me if I happen to be getting more than my fair share of garlic bread? That would never cross my mind. I would just keep eating the garlic bread. Yeah. No, I'd be like, this is awesome. I'm getting a lot of garlic bread. But I would notice that. But I'm what is the more psychotic uh, Whoa, stance? Whoa, let's not use that word. It's the more outlandish... Um, behavior would be force feeding yourself garlic bread, uh, bread, something that you don't enjoy. To what? Keep up appearances of a person that that likes garlic bread for okay. what reason? To oh. what end? Well, I don't know. Trying um, to so get a garlic is... bread sponsorship? Like I don't. <laughs> well, it's probably one of those things where, like, for example, the I, I won't use the specifics because everyone really gets mad at me. There is a staple food of every meal that I don't like and have never liked my entire life. I do not bring that up like out of nowhere if I'm starting to date someone and particularly if I'm like at Ooh. their parents' place for dinner. Like I don't want to make a deal of it because then it becomes a thing. So maybe you just didn't and then so it hits you a point. Eat it? You, you, or do you just leave it on the plate? Like is it No, like- I'm polite about it. I'll, I'll eat it. I probably won't finish it or something right. like that, but I'll, I'll eat it. And then like 
you have to decide at some point to reveal, like, hey, by the way, yeah. it's not my favorite. I didn't want to bring Married, it up. Married, though, for eight yes. years. So, feels like late missed, in the proceedings. You missed the window, though. There's a yeah. window of time. So we don't need I, – I didn't bring this up to get into their specific thing. Um, they're probably not listening, but if they were, they're probably upset that I've done five minutes on it now. No. But my general question is, like, how do you navigate that, like, as partners, if one of you doesn't like – like, is the outcome here – and whether it happened now or happened earlier in the relationship, is the outcome here? Ben Ennis, your wife says, I don't like Ben Ennis's favorite appetizer. Mm. Does Ben Ennis get more of that appetizer because it's still being ordered and she's just and your wife just isn't eating much? Or do you get net less of that appetizer because yes. you being a sharing partner, you, you guys as Unless a, as a duo kids. are just ordering it less? Unless you have kids because kids love garlic bread. But yeah, you're not and, – and nobody's – Listen, I would, but I haven't ordered just garlic bread for myself, right? Like, you know, that is a sharing appetizer. I'm not, dis- I'm not telling you that if I had ordered an appetizer of garlic bread between multiple people and I noticed someone else wasn't eating it, I wouldn't eat the entire thing because obviously I would. But yeah, if you know you're the only one of the two that likes the garlic bread, there's probably like a guilt factor of yeah. feeding your face full of garlic bread. I think unless there are kids... Again, and you're like yeah. ordering for kids, and kids then kids open everything up. I think, but, but no, right. that's that's it for garlic bread for him. I feel like all the kids that I know though are still at the age where they will like just eat anything. Like like I'm babysitting my nephew this weekend. Yeah, my a, kids don't eat anything. Well, it's like I don't know. He's a he's a little baby that doesn't have, oh. like his teeth are in, but he doesn't he doesn't know the difference between good food and bad food. I could just be like, mmm, broccoli. Oh. This is so good, and he'll just think it's cool and eat it. So because mm, it's uh, a mush. Yeah. Yeah, it's just different colored mush. Yeah, exactly. So no. I don't know. Maybe they'll they'll get to that point at some point. But I was curious as to your take on that because as a single man, I eat as much garlic bread as I you want. Know, even if I feel very, very guilty after because, yes, I ordered garlic bread for once. Honestly, like I, I, I get the the like the guilt that she must have felt for a near decade of eating this garlic bread or putting on this facade of a garlic bread enjoyer knowing that she was she didn't. But like I said, he gets net less garlic bread, perhaps no garlic bread. I mean, she should feel guilty about that. Like, putting that on him, that now, like, he has a taste for garlic bread. He thought he could go the rest of his life in this long marriage that they could live happily for the rest of their lives just eating plenty of garlic bread, and now it's over. I don't think it's going to ruin their relationship. Uh, I think, if anything, you know, the late night... Hey, I'm going to get some groceries, and instead of stopping at the you know fast food drive through, you you do sneak into like an Eastside Mario's or like a pizza place, and just be like, "Hey, can I just have some of that cheesy garlic?" Bread? <laughs> and it's just like she gets in the car later, and it smells garlicky. That's. Uh, uh, can you tell that I really don't want to talk about last night's Raptors game? Oh uh, well, okay, so we'll save that for later on. Why don't we start with what what is new, and that Yusei Kikuchi just made his final spring training. Start, likely. I mean, that hasn't been announced. Blue Jays wrap up their Grapefruit League play on Tuesday, which would give him four days rest in between outings, and he threw more than 80 pitches today. But he was real good. Didn't give up an earned run over five, one walk, nine punch-outs. So uh, the the totals in Grapefruit League look like this. 18 innings pitch, two earned runs, 10 walks, 25 strikeouts, though, Blake. So... What do we think of Yusei Kikuchi, a guy that went into Grapefruit League supposedly having to battle for uh, battle for that fifth starter spot, despite the fact that Mitch White was never going to be ready to at least start um, in the opening week of the season? He he could have really raised some eyebrows if he performed super poorly, which he clearly has not done. 
He has not. Um, this is, you know, it's been about the least exciting fifth starter battle you could have. Mitch White threw 40 pitches in a minor league game yesterday, apparently was sitting 94 plus and will throw again at in some point in one of these remaining uh, Blue Jays spring training game, if all goes well. But it was going to take both Mitch White being really good and Yusei Kikuchi not being that great for Mitch White to take that number five starter role because Mitch White has experience as a long man in the bullpen, can start the season on the IL, all of those things. But what you were watching with Kikuchi was basically a Kikuchi battle with himself and a Kikuchi battle with all of our confidence level in, are we entering the season where every single start is uh, a referendum on what is Yusei Kikuchi's role the rest of the season? Like that by the midway point last year, Every single start seemed to spurn a, well, is he going to the bullpen? Is he going to the minors? Is he going to get another start discussion? I think what Yusei Kikuchi's spring training has done has shown you that with length in outings, with um, even things like today where he did strike out three or four batters he faced in the the first inning uh, around a single, but that inning took 25 pitches. And generally, if you tell me Yusei Kikuchi took 25 pitches to get through an inning, I'm expecting a far worse line than three strikeouts and one hit. That is not something he's dealt with well in the past. He has, uh, I know we don't look at spring ERA and care much about it. I do at least find encouraging that while he has walked 10 guys in 18 innings, very few of those have come around because one of the Yusei Kikuchi things last year's was letting those things snowball. And if you walk a guy or two, not being able to get out of the inning, not being able to find your stuff to get yourself out of it. So all of these things we take with a billion grains of salt. I think at least, though, he's shown enough that you're comfortable giving him a fresh chance as the number five starter and not with the bar of a three-year, $36 million contract coming off of an all-star year, but with the bar of a fifth starter. If he comes in, you and I have talked about how the bar for a fifth starter, even on teams with really good rotations, is actually really low. Mm-hmm. Like if you go five innings every five days, giving up three runs, that's a 540 ERA. And I think every single one of us would take that from Yusei Kikuchi. He barely got through five innings today using almost 90 pitches against a like, not totally representative Twins lineup. But that's um, also like... If you're going to strike a lot of guys out, you're going to be less pitch efficient. Like, it's part of the Manoa thing from th- last year, this right? This is exactly what I'm about to talk about that like, hey, guess what? You say Kikuchi strikes people out. We know that last year, like during the horrible year, he had a K per nine of like 11. It was a career high. He struck everybody out. Especially who, in the bullpen. Yeah, who cares? Like, I don't care. And I don't care in, in large part about results out of spring and neither do you. It's process. And the process looks pretty similar to like last spring. The process looks pretty similar, honestly, with the number of walks to the regular season. That like, if he went... 18 innings without a walk, I'd, I'd be, holy cow, that's like a, that's a thing. But no, he didn't do that. He walked 10. He walked more than, you know, a batter per two innings. Like, the, no, I, I'm on, I'm at the exact same place with Yusei Kikuchi that I was at the end of last season. His Blue Jays tenure through one year has been extremely disappointing. You should have seen this coming because he's been this his entire career, say for half a season with Seattle. He strikes people out. We know that. He struck people out last year. It doesn't matter. Can he throw a strike? He still hasn't. Well, he threw enough strikes to get nine strikeouts to one walk today. Right. He, he 
does he oh, does you're you're right literally he threw some strikes but yeah you understand what i'm talking about here. i do understand what you're talking about and walks like what what did i say at the top of spring if you're gonna look at any stats what's one that i care about well it's walks for pitchers because yes. i think it beyond just the actual walks i think it tells you a lot about process and where your your confidence is with your command and every sort of pitch the one and again not looking at results this is more of the components of going to the results the one thing that maybe gives me a little bit more a little extra confidence on top of the fact that the strikeouts have been there is that he's done this utilizing his fastball a lot less than last year. So had he come into spring and he was just blowing people away with the fastball, getting a lot of strikeouts with that and, you know, still walking a lot of people, you might be like, oh, that that's not really a, a good uh, recipe. But what you could see in there is, yeah, he is throwing the slider and the changeup and the curve a little bit more and he yeah. doesn't locate those as well, but he's mixing those in enough and if you go into the regular season, he starts pumping that fastball closer to 50%, the pitch that he locates best. May, but, I maybe, mean, to me, it was like the fastball location at times last year that was his biggest bug. But like the guy was in 3-0 counts and couldn't throw a get-me-over fastball, right? Like he couldn't get back into counts. It's the fastball to me that's the problem. I'm still going to trust the fastball to get thrown for strikes more than the other yeah, pitches. Um, which is, yeah, I mean, yeah. Like he had no chance of locating. Praise. Yeah, he had no chance of locating the changeup last year, basically. Basically at all and the cutter was I mean he can spot that cutter in one spot he didn't throw it today at least according to Statcast's classification the curveball mm. that we didn't see barely at all last year was his fourth pitch so maybe that curveball is something to watch he, he hasn't thrown it in the major leagues but yeah I think that you know none of this is is great none of it is ideal <laughs> but again we're talking about a fifth starter and if he's able to yeah I don't get know. through five. But what you said exactly. is correct. But the thing is, last year he couldn't get you anywhere near five. No. Way too often. And I'm just saying that, like, I, I don't think that this is going to be an all-star season for Yusei Kikuchi. I don't think the strikeouts in spring should make you think any differently about the ceiling or the floor. I just think as far as a fifth starter, like, if we can get rid of the sunk cost mentally mm-hmm. of the contract... I mean, are you confident enough that Yusei Kikuchi can be a non-disaster no. for long enough that no. if for Mitch White to get healthy or Ricky Tito oh, to come well, along? I mean, Mitch White is going to be healthy enough, I think, to be the long man in the bullpen uh, opening week, uh, mm. a week from today, I think. I mean, he's with, all- on, with only one major league game maybe under his belt why not Major i mean if he's throwing 40 pitches now and he's gonna throw 50 pitches in his next outing well, i mean the, the why not answer and we could talk to arden about yes. this because arden's done such, over it yeah arden's done such a great job um covering some of the kind of down bullpen candidates if not for the opening day roster then guys will see up from triple a at some point the the real explanation for mitch white to not start the season in the bullpen is that because mitch white has no options Mm -hmm. it lets you give if he starts the season on the il and gets a little extra time in buffalo or at the minor league complex it does give you uh, an extra chance to look at a a zach pop or a nate pearson or something like that before optioning them down it's not the biggest deal in the world but mitch white having no options you you want to make sure you just want to make sure with mitch white is all yeah you would like to make sure uh, I think you also have two guys, two-fifths of your rotation, and I think less so Jose Barrios because, again, go back to the track record, but certainly with Yusei Kikuchi that you might need a long man. You might need yeah. somebody to throw 50 pitches coming out of the bullpen, and uh, there's nobody that really fills that role for me. Last thing on Yusei Kikuchi, like back to the strikeout thing, like it's great. Like Strikeouts are the best thing you can do mm-hmm. as a pitcher, but not really, right? Like if you could get every out, if you could – Pitch a perfect game in 27 pitches, that would be the best thing you could do. 
I would, if if this was an option, and clearly it's not like as easy as snapping your fingers, although pitchers have talked about inducing soft contact before and pitching more to contact, if you could tick the strikeout numbers down for Yusei Kikuchi and resolve some innings a lot quicker with some some softly hit ground balls or ground balls at people, obviously I would do that, but it's not not as easy as that. And that's not the type of pitcher he is. He's a guy that misses bats. Yeah, it, it, he is. And he's, you know, part of that overpowering is about not just the missing bats, it's about keeping hitters uncomfortable. You know, if you have a, an elite two-pitch mix, fastball slider as a lefty who goes into the higher 90s, you know, maybe that's not everyone's on paper what what a starter who's going to give you six, seven innings looks like. But the idea with Yusei Kikuchi is the top-end stuff is good enough that even if you're not locating it that super well, it's really hard for a hitter to stay comfortable in there against it. And that's what I do is just take a lot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Especially and, if I'm me. And I, I don't guarantee that Yusei Kikuchi would be able to throw it over against even this, me. I've told you the story about my dad coming to one of my baseball games before, right? And being really mad at me for this. Yes. Like, I didn't leave work and rush to your baseball game to yeah, watch you take a walk. That's right. Yeah. yeah. And, like, in yeah, a... In guys a, like, didn't walk off the island. Yeah. Bell in, Island. In more of a chirping way than yeah. a, like, actually mad way. But, yeah. like, yeah, don't stand there and uh, strike it looking twice and walk twice. That's not a... Yeah. That's not fun. But I told him, I'm not in the entertainment business. I'm in the winning... <laughs> I'm in the winning minor <laughs> baseball game business. Um, no, and, and I get it. And uh, I think, obviously, swing and miss is good right like if you if any pitcher throws something and a guy swings and misses at it and you're like oh i wish that guy grounded out instead because that's more efficient but things like fouls and things like nibbling and turning you know one two counts into three two counts before Mm -hmm. you finally get the punch out those are the areas where you can be a little more efficient if you're a guy like you say kikuchi trust your stuff a little bit more and attack in the zone a little bit more um we'll see how that continues to progress I, i do think that the yes the strikeouts are are wonderful but someone should pick up the greg maddox mantle and continue trying to throw a 27 pitch game yeah even if it's like yeah i don't know you have to you have to read bats i mean and alec manoa is the best at doing that like Mm -hmm. yeah like this is a guy that seemingly has that gene the i mean you can't read bats for a 27 pitch though because no one every (laughs) swing would be a ball in play you're right yeah you'd be reading the the bat swing of the last guy and that doesn't really apply to the next guy no it doesn't you'd be like oh ben i threw this to ben ennis and he chopped at the third base for an out so what do i do to mike gentilly i don't know throw him something different (laughs) that he'll chop the third base for an out Mm. it's uh it's a beautiful thing to be a greg maddox type Mm. uh, less so if you're but i do think like this this does bring up an interesting point and I never got the chance to talk to Alec Manoa last year but I really do one of my biggest curiosities about the J season last year was Alec Manoa and this this got into the Manoa Gosman debate with you know underlying metrics and FIP versus you know Fangrass war or baseball reference war or just how much do we value strikeouts when we really try to determine who the ace is I look at Alec Manoa's numbers 2021 compared to 2022 I see fewer strikeouts longer outings and more efficient outings and I wonder if hey a guy who reads bats like him a guy who thinks the game and plans out his plate appearances at the level he does 
Is that something he's doing willingly? Hey, I'm going to strike fewer guys out, but good luck hitting that. Like if you're going to hit 180 against my stuff low is. in the zone, and I would, hey, Alec Manoa, come on the show. Yeah. Let's discuss it. Let's uh, let's get our Chris Bassett, Ross Stripling on. We'll get right into the yep. the pitch design, the plate appearance that, design, and all and that stuff. That was the Roy Halladay thing, and I know he had 200 strikeout seasons. And because he could, pitched like 400 yeah. innings. But that was, man, liked to get his business done in like three pitches in an at-bat. And yeah. uh, he doesn't get paid hourly. No, he doesn't. All right, you've uh, delayed long enough. Mm. Let's talk about the the Pacers starting three Canadians, first team in NBA history to do so, and they do it in a victory, 118-114 over the Raptors on Canada basketball night. So, so that was cool. Andrew Nembhard with a bunch of family and and friends in a, attendance. A bunch, five hundred. They That's said a lot. I don't. So, for anyone who doesn't know, you do not get five hundred tickets as a visiting player. Do you have to pay for even the ones you get? You get a couple, and I think they are part, like, they're probably a taxable benefit. Oh. Um, and they're negotiated through, like, the CBA. Like, every visiting player has the right to claim mm. X number or whatever. But, and, and what normally happens is, like, say Fred Van Vliet and the Raptors are in Chicago. Well, Fred Van Vliet will maybe call in the favor from the rest of his teammates because he's from nearby Rockford mm-hmm. and he's going to have a lot of people at the game. And then, right. you know, it's an IOU, my tickets to another game kind of thing. You don't have 250 teammates. You don't. And Andrew <laughs> Nembert also would have had to split all of that with O'Shea Brissett and Benedict Matarin, who yeah. are also Canadians who were starting in that game. All, of, all three of them, by the way, had tremendous games. Too. Yeah. Well, this is where I wanted to go. Because, okay, we can talk about the Raptors side of it. Hey, the Raptors are capable of losing to anybody, okay? And clearly when the Pistons and Dwayne Casey show up tomorrow, uh, that's a game they're very capable of losing as well with Corey yeah. Joseph. Although they've done well against the Pistons weirdly this year. So Right. Well, Ooh. that's that's three straight losses to a Pacers team that is uh, probably going to miss the play-in tournament. Three straight losses to a Pacers team, all with, like, disastrous stretches of fourth-quarter play. Yeah, and they were, I know, they were without uh, Scotty Barnes, no Gary Trent Jr., and no, no Precious Achua. No Tyrese Halliburton. Yeah, exactly. For the Pacers. Who, were cares. down their best player also like it was you know you can miss gary trent and precious achua absolutely but if you're trying to defend a lead in the fourth quarter right now given the way the rotation's gone the last little bit those two guys weren't on the floor anyway mm-hmm. and so yeah scotty barnes is still a, a big absence there but i think we can say scotty barnes and tyrese halliburton being out of the end game scenario there balances out the raptors for all their positional versatility on defense they really really have struggled not just with indiana but Indiana's notable because they're not a very good offensive team. They're a bottom five offense. The Raptors over three meetings with the Pacers have turned them in terms of offensive rating into the Sacramento Kings who are about to set the NBA record for offensive rating in a season. Um, The Raptors have struggled with these multi-guard lineups. And last night they started three guards, uh, Brissett's a forward and Turner's kind of a, a forward slash center. So it wasn't the four round one, but Basically, when teams have gone for round one, when Aaron Naismith comes off the bench for that Pacers team uh, and, and Brissett goes to the bench, like the Raptors have really struggled with guard-heavy teams, which is not supposed to be the case when you have all these versatile defenders who are supposed to be able to... It, it's not supposed to be just about threes guarding fours and fours guarding fives. It's supposed to be about your threes guarding twos and your fours guarding threes. Yeah. Um, the positional versatility defensively has worked in one direction more than it's worked in the other direction. I think the Pacers really highlight that with just a bunch of guards who can do fun stuff. Yeah. And three Canadians again, who played super well, takes me back to just before Christmas, actually, when Pascal Siakam put up his 50 burger at the Mecca at MSG. And I think MSG, even for the Canadians is still MSG. Like there's a certain aura around that place when it comes to having a career game, but for the Canadians, 
and the three of them who are not established stars, but even like a Shea, right? Like, is coming to Scotiabank Arena like their Madison Square Garden? I think so. I, I think we're going to, you know, see guys get up for that. Now, statistically, maybe it doesn't it doesn't bear out yet. Like we'll have to we'll have to see. But we know that Wiggins has had big games here. We know yep. that Shea's had big games here. Um, Jamal Murray didn't have a great game here, but he absolutely won them the meeting with Toronto the week before in Denver. Um, we know that these guys get up for it. Um, Benedict Mathurin, I know he didn't have like a big scoring output last night. That was maybe the best defensive game we've seen him play, including just yeah. sending OG to the shadow realm on one. Um, and those were also guys who... After, I mean, before the game, uh, Mark McDonald of Sportsnet did this great sit down with them. He had gone to Indiana to do to sit down with the three of them. But all three of those guys are guys who have been a part of the Canada basketball program and spoke eagerly about being a part of the Canada basketball program again in the future. So that part's really exciting. I think, yeah, you're like this is. I don't want to get over overly Toronto centric because some of these guys are not from Toronto, like Lou Dort and Chris Boucher um, are, are from Quebec. Some of the guys are, are from out West or whatever, but it's the only Canadian barn. And yeah, wouldn't you get up for it? I think I would. And it, and it leads me down this path and, and no offense to the Chris Boucher's or the Jamal McGlores of the world. And, and even the three guys that we're talking about playing for this Pacers team are not in the realm. Like, I guess what I'm talking about is like a Shea Gilgis Alexander. Can you imagine the Raptors for the first time in their franchise's history having a homegrown Canadian superstar. And obviously, like, every hockey team has a Canadian superstar. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to think of, like, a comparable. And honestly, the first one that popped in my head was, like, hey, you know what's hard uh, to do is is create an NHL hockey star out of Arizona. And we're about to have another one with Matthew Nye showing (laughs) up at some point here. But, like, imagine the scenario in which – and it's – it's uh, even more than Canadians uh, playing in the NBA because obviously there are more Canadians than any other nationality playing in the NBA outside of the United States. But if Austin Matthews returned to Arizona and played for the Coyotes, what would that look like? It would obviously be a massive boon to that franchise to a, a lesser degree. I mean, what would it look like if, and it's not like the Thunder are going to let go of Shea Gilgis Alexander, but what would it look like if, we finally got a homegrown, hometown superstar playing for the Toronto Raptors. I think it would be amazing. I think, you know, part of the reason people were lusty for potential shade trades, if this Thunder thing didn't turn around on the right timeline, is not that, like I said earlier in the season, I can't remember if it was with Will Lou or with, with J.D. Bunkus, like if the Thunder season had gone poorly and they were more aggressively tanking, they weren't in the play-in and stuff, and that team traded away Shea Gilgis-Alexander, like the league might have to step in Chris Paul trade style because what that would be saying then is we tore all the way down. We got a 24-year-old superstar who agreed to stay, and then we traded him away. Like every small market team would no longer have a leg to stand on in terms of the the system is rigged against us. So um, the Thunder turning it around. I was just going to say, I guess, like, to, to um, get more to the, the purpose of, the, like, yeah, because what would it look like? It would be amazing, like, pretty clearly. Mm-hmm. But would it be, like, because there are so many Canadians in the sport right now, would it be more impactful than somebody else? Like, does it matter anymore? Like, say say it was Shea over somebody of that ilk, which, I mean... Uh, Who's of that ilk? I, uh, there's nobody. There's like <laughs> six guys of that ilk, right? That's right. In his ilkness. Yeah. I mean, does it? Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, you're talking about an MVP candidate, but yeah. But let's go lower then. Let's let's say, let's play out a scenario where the Raptors had cap space this summer. They won't, but let's play it out. Yeah. Dylan Brooks is a free agent. Mm-hmm. He would be the 
biggest and highest end Canadian to ever play for the Toronto Raptors. Like he's yeah, higher he's, on the pecking chart. He's not than, a superstar, but he's all, all over NBA Twitter on a nightly basis. Yeah. Um, and I, I think, you know, that, that would be something that maybe not the ref side of it, but like mm. something that the Raptors could use a bit of is that, that villain nature yeah. and the like, we're not going to complain about the world being turned against us. We're going to be the ones turning the world against you. Like, like yeah. we're the bad guys. You're the, you're fighting from underneath. So let, let's play that out. It's not Shea. It's not Jamal Murray. It's not Steve Nash at his peak, but Dylan Brooks is a guy who could potentially be an all defense player this year. Uh, very high, like notability rating around the league, not a superstar, but he'd be the best Canadian to play for the Raptors while on the Raptors. Like, I think we could safely put him ahead of Boucher and Corey Joseph um, in terms of how good that guy was at that moment. Is th- does that do anything for yeah, you? Yeah, is there an impetus for the front office to target Canadians? I think it's a great tiebreaker. I, I remember when Jama Malalela, who's now with the Warriors, was coaching the 905, and he uh, Jama's a, a homegrown guy as well. Um, he said that, no, I'm not going to pick a guy over another guy just because he's Canadian. But if there's if it's close to a tie, yeah, absolutely, a thousand percent, I'm going over it. And and the Raptors have like until Corey Joseph like really didn't have much of a Canadian presence. Like Jamal McGlure played mm-hmm. like eight. He was Udonis Haslam yeah. the one year he was on the team. The biggest game he had was the Ben Uzo triple double game where they <laughs> needed an eighth healthy body. <laughs> um, so until like kind of Corey Joseph came along and Chris Boucher, they were pretty patient with and is now like I like is clearly the best Canadian to have played for the Raptors. He had the best Raptors career of any Canadian player. Um, but like. They tried with Ken Birch, and it wasn't really because he was Canadian, and they moved off of it when it wasn't working. It, it Delano wasn't, Banton might be running out of run. Delano Banton's, I'd be surprised if he's back next year. Wow. Um, I know he's dealing with a thumb thing right now, but he hasn't had the best time with the 905 this year either. He's a restricted free agent, and they've got some tough decisions to make uh, at, at that part of the roster. So um, I, I don't think it's something that the front office is going to be beholden to. I, I don't think they're going to overreach for guys just because they're Canadian. Um and again, the Dylan Brooks example is more of one about Q rating than actual fit because the Raptors won't have the cap space for it. Um, but yeah, if you could get Shea, like, like let's, <laughs> that okay, would be good. let's play out another hypothetical. <laughs> the NBA is like, you know what? We don't like the way the teams are. Everyone's a free agent now. <laughs> is uh, that likely? Could that no. happen in the new CBA? Uh, they can negotiate whatever they want. There's nobody stopping them. I don't think it's going to happen. But in that scenario, like, is Shea higher on the Raptors board than he is on the board for other teams? Probably a couple spots. Shea's yeah. probably in the top 10 on every board, yeah. but maybe for the Raptors, he's, you know, given his age and that he's from Canada, maybe he's three, four, five instead of eight, nine, ten. The comparison now that, I, and I have a chance to think about it, is Russell Martin with the Blue Jays, right? Because the, mm-hmm. the, it, it, he's not an MVP level talent, but he was an all-star when the Blue Jays acquired him in free agency. He was easily one of the best catchers in baseball and a Canadian. And and there are Canadians in Major League Baseball, but not a ton. Mm-hmm. And not in, it's not like the NBA. They're not, Canada is not the second most represented nation in Major League Baseball. I would think it's the Dominican Republic, but yeah. I think that's pretty safe. Anyway, so with the NBA conversation, like let's go a tier down from superstar then and just look at the the larger pool. Like there are 20 20 to 25 Canadians on NBA rosters right now. Mm -hmm. Does it move the knee? Like I know last night we celebrated Canada basketball. There's a lot of Canada basketball stuff going on right now. We have Michael Bartlett, the CEO of Canada basketball on with us today around 630. um, And three Canadians had never started together before. All that's great. Day to day. 
Do we even mention when we're talking about the Oklahoma City Thunder? Oh, by the way, Shea and Lou Dort are Canadian. We don't. When you are talking about the Raptors, how often does it come up? Like, yeah, on Open Gym or something like that, we go into Chris Boucher's background, but nobody's like, yeah, the the Canadian guy. Mm -hmm. Like, it's a part of the story, but it's not the main part of the story. It's it's a secondary thing, and there are a handful of teams around the NBA with multiple Canadians. It's just like... Yeah, the Pacers happen to be the outlier one where there were four Canadians on the court at once last night and had um, Delano Banton been healthy, maybe it could have been five. Chris Duarte, who who didn't play for the Pacers, is also mm-hmm. like has Canadian roots on his, I believe, his father's side. So that that's cool. But like day to day, there being a Canadian opponent, like it used to be that when we'd go down for opponent shoot around the day of the game, so in the the morning before game starts, Every single visiting Canadian, mm-hmm. big scrum and big weight to talk to them at shoot around. Mm-hmm. Now you get that for Shea, Jamal Murray, Dylan Brooks, probably Kelly Olenek just because and Corey Joseph because people like talking to him and stuff. But like Dwight Powell's not having a huge scrum. Mm-hmm. Lou Dort's not having a huge scrum. Um, if it wasn't such a special night last night or, or if the Pacers were here twice this year, like those guys probably aren't getting huge, huge scrums. There's something and people have columns to fill and stuff like that. But from a fan perspective, night to night, it's really not that big a deal that there are Canadians everywhere. We we didn't we went through this whole conversation without mentioning R.J. Barrett, by the way, who is yeah. one of the highest drafted and one of the better Canadians in the league. Yeah, and, and playing on a team that's going to make the playoffs. Um the last person to score 70 goals in an NHL season was not a Canadian, though. It was Brett Hull in 92. But perhaps this will be the year that a Canadian retakes that throne. If he has any national pride whatsoever, <laughs> he'll go on a heater down the stretch here. Uh, Connor McDavid scored two, including number 60 yesterday. Uh, Leafs and Panthers tonight as well. We'll talk to Frank Saravelli next, president of Hockey Content with DailyFaceOff.com next. As the fan drive time continues, Ben Ennis, Blake Murphy, Sportsnet 590, the fan. Drive Time, Sportsnet 5.9 of the fan. Ben Ennis, Blake Murphy. All right, I'm going to say it. Connor McDavid, quite good. Scored uh, number 59, number 60 yesterday. He's on pace for 68. Brett Hall, 92, the last man to hit the 70 mark. 71 would put Connor McDavid into the top 10 all-time single season. Uh, Frank Saravelli. So many goals. Sorry. It's, a, it's a lot. I know. It's stupid. Frank Saravelli is the president of hockey content for dailyfaceoff.com. All right, go ahead. Disagree. Connor McDavid, really good. Yeah, you're not going to find an argument from me. Yeah, he, he, it's stupid what he's doing. And yeah, again, leading the National Hockey League in assists as well. So, so where does he have to go? And maybe he's already there where you start thinking this is... The, and accounting for, for era and everything, this is the greatest individual season this sport has ever seen. Uh, it still probably has, you know, even putting everyone on a level playing surface, it still probably has a little bit of a ways to go. But I'd say safely this is definitely one of the top five best individual seasons in NHL history, but could potentially be in the top three. 
Yeah, 70 to me feels like once you, yeah, you do that for the first time since the lockout, first time in, in like 30 years. Yeah, that's that's something, boy. I mean, we, we are talking, like there's literal comparisons to Wayne Gretzky seasons from the era of the NHL that looks nothing like what we see right now. Frank, that's to me the biggest thing is like we have goalies who routine, routinely have save percentages of like 910, 915, 917, and and Connor McDavid is putting up numbers that like if if he were playing alongside Wayne Gretzky in that era, you'd be like, oh yeah, that's like that guy's a hell of a scorer. You know, he'd be right next to him for sure. Um, I would say, and I'm in the minority on this opinion, given where he's at in his career, and still the scary part is hasn't quite reached his peak yet. I don't think the peak of his powers. Mm. I would say I think that Connor McDavid will ultimately go down as the the best player of all time, the yeah. GOAT. Like I, I, with all due respect to Wayne Gretzky, the records, different time, like just, just I tested, go back and look at the game. Totally different game. He's the, he's easily the most highly evolved player of all time, given all the different attributes and, and things that he brings to the ice. Mm-hmm. But I, I think when it's all said and done, regardless of where he stands point total wise, uh, you know, probably in the 2000 range, he, I, I think he's still going to go down as the best of, of all time to ever be ever play. That's uh that's a tough one. I don't know that, uh, that even Oilers fans would agree because the other guy who is the best of all time, the, the best of all time is, uh, you know, an Edmonton Oiler as well. So that's a, that'll be a tough one for that fan base to sort through. Um, Frank, we, for like decades had nobody score 60 goals from, from the Yager Lemieux tag team, 60 goal season in 95, 96. The only player until last year to do it was Alex Ovechkin. Now we've had players do it in consecutive years in Austin Matthews and Connor McDavid. Um, scoring around the league is not up significantly, like not, not to those earlier eighties, nineties levels. Surely um, some of this is just, yeah, Connor McDavid's really good. And Austin Matthews had a good season, but do you, do you see anything kind of trend wise or, or have a a thought on why maybe we've seen this twice in a row after seeing it one off for like almost 30 years? So you are forgetting about Steven Stamkos, but that's your point. Oh, is yeah. still Valid. Nonetheless, um, you know, I think what the what's at play here is for the longest time goalies were ahead and had a significant advantage over shooters. And I think the way the game has evolved, how quickly players are moving the puck from one side of the ice to the other and the additions, or I guess you could say incremental gains in equipment have benefited shooters. And right now, if you're thinking about it, like a seesaw, shooters have the real advantage and at some point it's going to swing back to the goalies uh at some point the game is going to be coached differently and it's teams are going to do a way better job defending but right now the edge is with the shooters and it Mm. hadn't been that way for 15 18 years yeah even if you're behind the net you just fire it off the guy's (laughs) back like i i know i'm creating a problem that doesn't exist yet because nobody's been hurt by that but like yeah, is it like we need to like maybe change equipment for goalies, like make bigger pads on their no. backs or something? No, <laughs> are you are you crazy? We need to make the nets bigger. Yeah, you're right. This is the highest shooting percentage in the league since 2000, 2001, and that is like by a like a tiny, tiny margin. Otherwise, you got to go back to the ninety five, ninety six mm. season that I mentioned. I would actually 
argue that like we we still haven't gone far enough in correcting this like this year uh the average goals in a game is 3.19 which is really really high compared to the last two decades or so that we've played through but still like about a half a goal per team less than what it was during Gretzky's heyday. Frank, do you, like, obviously McDavid's an outlier, but in general, the increase in scoring environment incrementally over the last couple of years, um, what is the point, in your opinion, where, like, we're at the right level? I think we're there right now. I wouldn't want to see it be, you know, 9, 7, 8, 6, 10, 4 on a nightly basis. I, I think that's you know, maybe a little bit over the top. I think there's sort of a nice blend right now in that one of my favorite things about watching the NHL right now is that a team down three goals in the third period isn't necessarily out of the game. Mm-hmm. Like, you, you can't necessarily turn off your TV and go do something else because the, the multi-goal comebacks have been a real thing. And just, just to put a bow on, you know, sort of the offensive explosion – I'd have to really do a deep dive in comparing, like, look, it's obviously a way different league now with 32 teams. But one thing that's really struck me about this year in particular is there's a lot of really bad hockey teams. Mm. Like I'd say it's the highest number of bad teams that I could really remember. And I think that's actually really hurt the product. Mm. I'm not one of those people that's pounding my fists on the table for parity because I like the difference and – I just wonder if that's contributed to the increase in offense. It's just you you can pretty much, you know, at least three to four teams in the East and definitely four to five teams in the West. Like you're talking about almost a third of the league that's just more or less on a nightly basis hot garbage. Yep. No, actually, you know what? Take those two goals back from yesterday against the Coyotes, even though, I mean, one was overtime and you needed that one to win a close game against the team that's tanking for Connor Bedard. But no, it's it's a great, great point. And not only is he scoring 60 goals, maybe 70, uh, and and winning an Art Ross and, and maybe a Stanley Cup, but Connor McDavid is also like speaking out on behalf of the people that want to see him play alongside Sidney Crosby in an international event, best on best for the first time in their careers. Um, do his public comments in regards to talking about how great the World Baseball Classic was and how he would love to see it and, like, that's what he's been pounding the table for, does that have any impact on the potential of that happening? Not to my knowledge, unless he wants to start getting involved in actually doing something from the NHLPA level. I mean, until then, like, last time I checked, there were 11 players in the league who selected the next executive director as part of this selection committee. And Marty Walsh is expected to address the media for the first time next Thursday. And I'm looking forward to asking him a question specifically about the world cup and, and best on best competition, Mm. which I think the fact that Connor McDavid will be 28 by the time he gets to put on a team Canada Jersey for keeps um, at the men's level is it's absolutely bonkers. Yeah. Like to think that he goes from world juniors to playing 10 full years in the NHL and that's his first chance to play best on best competition wearing a Team Canada jersey, it's an unmitigated disaster. It's a complete failure in leadership and I'm, I'm on the record saying it. I wrote it months back when they decided to scrap the next iteration of the World Cup of Hockey because they didn't want to make a hard decision on what to do with Russia. Yeah they blamed it on the current geopolitical sphere before that it was COVID and the pandemic. And, and look, 
No one could foresee that coming, but there have been opportunities and options here. And to think that you can go from 2004 to then 2016 with the World Cup of Hockey, two bastardized versions that are 12 years apart, and think that that's going to develop any sort of continuity, historical uh, significance, uh, weight or impact in the marketplace. Fans see right through it. And you know what the scary part is? Fans, and, and I would sign up in a second to watch it because we're that starved for best on best international competition but everyone else can see it for what it is, which is more or less a money grab and which has been, sadly enough, uh, the World Cup of Hockey has been a negotiating chip and playing uh, at the Olympics and best on best competition. That's that's what it's been. It's what, what are you going to give us in exchange for pausing our season? That's That's not what it should be. It should be for the, the you know, for the growth of the game, for the actual – um, you know, competition and spirit of of what this should be, which is representing your country. Is the answer not just the money? Like Major League Baseball controls the world, like is getting a bunch of the change from the World Baseball Classic and we're seeing ridiculous attendance figures and really good TV ratings. Like are we so down the hole of everything CBA related has to be antagonistic that the NHL can't actually look at it as a positive revenue stream and kind of everyone gets what they want? Well, it could, but just go back to 2016. The games were played in Toronto. There were a bunch of games. And first off, I don't even consider that to be the real best on best competition. McDavid and Matthews were both wearing Team North America jerseys. So... You know, until they can play for their respectful countries, like, sorry, that doesn't count. Um, but the revenue was disappointing. If I'm not mistaken, I don't have the numbers in front of me. I think the total net revenue was $50 million mm. after all expenses paid, which then needed to be divided equally between players and, you know, the league slash owners, which netted $25 million each which was sort of vastly below expectations. And yet, you know, what we heard publicly was, oh, what a great success it was. And what we heard privately was, man, that really didn't feel like it was worth it. <laughs> yeah, no, uh, 100%. I remember, uh, I remember covering it and uh, nobody cared. Uh, the, the, like the uniforms were kind of cool and it was cool to see Austin Matthews on the ice at what was then Air Canada Centre for the first time before he was even at Toronto, I believe. But no, they, they, they blew it. Um, before, we get, uh, before we let you go, Frank, speaking of Austin Matthews, yeah, that news broke a little bit last week that he has been dealing with a hand issue. And I know last time I talked to you, you were wondering why there is not this you in the a cry over Matthews' uh, relatively disappointing season. Does, does that change the, the way you look at, at what has happened with his, his counting stats this year? It does and it doesn't. I mean, it's just it's added, you know, support to the argument for, you know, why he's the reaction has been what it's been. Although I would say I didn't know that because it wasn't public. I think you always assume mm-hmm. that at varying points of the year, everyone is going through something. But if that were really the case and there was all this, you know, there was this soreness as he explained it and and not feeling quite right, like instead of playing through that, like why not just take 10 games off 
and get yourself totally right, miss a month, and then come back and be the Austin Matthews, you know, wearing the cape that everyone expects. He's certainly been better of late. You you know, look at his last, you know, 10, 11 games, six goals, 14 points, um, has, has looked a lot more threatening. But he doesn't still, and I don't know if it's a hand thing or if any of this has spilled over into the mental part of it, he doesn't look to have the same sort of swagger or, you know, threat to him. And and maybe I'm crazy in the way that I'm explaining it, but there was just this thing about him last year where, like, walking into the the arena, like, he he just appeared to be a stone-cold killer. Yep. No, you're and right. He doesn't he doesn't have that same juice this year. Yeah. And and I don't know what, what comes first. Is the scoring a bunch of goals or is it the, the attitude first? Uh, Frank, uh, always great to chat. We'll talk to you next week. Have a good one, guys. You too. Frank Sarvelli, president of hockey content for dailyfaceoff.com. You know what's interesting? I was doing like a little dive into the Connor McDavid uh, scoring season and where Austin Matthews um, falls behind and where he excels and what's going on with his season. Actually leads McDavid... An individual expected goals created per 60 at five on five. But obviously, like, his shooting percentage is way down, which, like, plays into the whole hand thing. I think one of my favorite things about doing this show with you over the last couple months is the slow realization that you're more of an analytics guy than me on (laughs) hockey. Love it. Love it. Love me some numbers. We'll talk numbers. Uh, We'll talk Yusei Kikuchi with Arden Zwelling of the At The Letters podcast next as the fan drive time. Oh, it continues. Ben Ennis, Blake Murphy, Sportsnet 590, The Fan.